It's a brand new week. It's a Monday. It must mean it's time for a brand new episode of the podcast with the mostest. People are wild. I'm Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host, who is ecstatic that one of my favorite shows of all time is starting up this week. Yes, indeed. In my world, there are four seasons. Fall, winter, spring, and Big Brother U.S. edition. It is one of my guilty pleasure shows to watch and possibly immerse myself in for the next few months. Oh yes, it goes on for almost three months. It's probably not healthy the amount of time I have devoted towards watching the live feeds, and even before live feeds are up, doing some intel on some house guests as they are already announced. Thank you for that, CBS. And it's probably not healthy the amount of time I devote to watching old seasons in general when I'm waiting for a new episode to begin in a new season. CBS pretty much owns my soul at various times of the year. And if you're unfamiliar with Big Brother, it's a show about a bunch of house guests living in a house that has heaps of cameras that are on 24-7. And every week there's an elimination with the winner being crowned by a jury at the end. And these jury is comprised of their house guests that have been evicted. And so the winner gets half a million dollars. And along the way, they can get other sums of money, different sort of luxury items, and different experiences too. But I think the reason why I love Big Brother so much is because of the social aspects that go along with it and the paranoia that happens when you're on lockdown without your phone 24-7 in a house full of people that say they're your friends but also vote against you at a moment's notice. Seeing all that infighting just lights up the little baby psychologist maybe that's in me or just the person that took a Psych 101 class in college just to get that credit. But anyways, I think it's all about how people interact with each other, especially from different backgrounds. And there are certain reasons why they cast certain people. So if this sounds familiar, if you're thinking to yourself, that sounds a little bit like the real world, you are correct. So if you mix together the real world with Survivor and you put it inside of the house, add in some competitions for power, and maybe a dash of constant camera coverage like CCTV, you've got Big Brother. So between that and The Bachelorette, my summer is booked. Oh yes, I do watch The Bachelorette, and I did see that Bachelor in Paradise is going to be debuting August 7th. So basically, I'm booked all the way through the summer. I'm I just have to say this, this season of The Bachelorette, it's just painfully boring. And on top of that, it seems like every week there's a new scandal with one of the guys being an idiot, being a tool, being a grade A douche canoe. And it's just boring this season. Let's do the damn thing, as in let's get the damn thing over with. Sorry, Becca, but... I've kind of lost interest except for Jordan. Captain Underpants, thank you for all the sound bites. You're no Chad, but you're up there. Anyways, I digress. Big Brother is starting up soon, like this week, and in the spirit of Julie Chen's catchphrase, it's time to expect the unexpected from the podcast that gives you medutainment on a weekly basis. So I have lit my Halle Berry prayer candle, which smells like perfection, and an awkward Adrian Brody kiss. And I've listened to the Violent Femmes blister in the sun on a loop repeat for about an hour. So I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. Did you know that your skin is the largest organ and plays a vital role in detecting hot and cold? as well as regulating your body temperature and protecting your muscles, bones, and internal organs from outside infection and disease. But wait, there's more. 
The average person's skin covers an area of two square meters. Skin accounts for about 15% of your body weight. The average adult has approximately 21 square feet of skin, which weighs nine pounds and contains more than 11 miles of blood vessels. The average person has about 300 million skin cells. A single square inch of skin has about 19 million cells and up to 300 sweat glands. Your skin is the thickest on your feet and the thinnest on your eyelids. The skin renews itself every 28 days. Your skin constantly sheds dead cells, about 30 to 40,000 cells every minute. That's nearly nine pounds per year. Some sources estimate that more than half of the dust in your home is actually dead skin. Dead skin comprises about a billion tons of dust in the Earth's atmosphere. That's disgusting. Your skin is home to more than 1,000 species of bacteria. Skin that is severely damaged may try to heal itself by forming scar tissue, which is different from normal skin tissue because it lacks hair and sweat glands. Skin can form additional thickness and toughness, or a cow if exposed to repeated friction or pressure. Let me just say that. Anytime a guy wants to hold my hand, he gets to discover the calluses that have never gone away thanks to rowing. Some of the nerves in your skin are connected to muscles instead of the brain, sending signals through the spinal cord to react more quickly to heat and pain and other sort of sensations. Your skin has at least five different types of receptors that respond to touch and pain. Now I should level with y'all. If you didn't catch this one, that dead skin fact, it was more stressful to comprehend than when you see someone on Chopped using the damn ice cream maker with 10 minutes left on the clock. But let's set a bit of a scene for this week's episode. You've been hiking on a trail for a bit of time and you've been reapplying your sunscreen, hydrating appropriately, but you're starting to notice that your boots that you had to borrow from your friend because you totally didn't realize you didn't bring your own are starting to make your feet hurt. More to the point, you're feeling a hot spot on the back of your right ankle and you still have three miles left until you're back at the trailhead. So take yourself out of that scenario. Maybe the outdoors isn't really your jam. Maybe you're at a party and you wanted to look distinguished and fancy, oh, like an Iggy Azalea song, or maybe like you're at a dinner party from hell. And so you went to Ross and bought some heels at a good deal because there is nothing wrong with a bargain and I will always stand by that. And I didn't realize heels and deal rhymed until right now. So bought some heels at a good deal. Trademark that Ross, you can have it. But you made a mistake. You didn't quite break in those heels. In fact, you didn't do it at all. Not even once because you're a flip flop and sneaker type of person and you don't have time to break in heels. So now you've found that you've got a bit of a hot spot developing on the inside of your right great toe. So what do you do on your hike or to get through your night to make sure that these things aren't ruined by these wannabe blisters? We'll get ready to zig a zig ah with some tips on how to treat hot spots and blisters. Now in your pack or perhaps your purse, bum bag, fanny pack, whatever you call it, you might want to invest in carrying some moleskin, duct tape, athletic or other medical tape when you're wearing shoes that aren't quite broken in yet. Now, FYI, moleskin is not some promotion thing from Celebrity Mole or The Mole, which was one of the greatest reality TV shows in the early 2000s that was actually 
actually gone much too soon. Pour one out. They should reboot that show, especially Celebrity Mole version of it. Wasn't Anderson Cooper on one edition of it? I'll have to look that up later. What was I talking about? Moleskin, right. Moleskin or mole foam is available at stores like Walgreens and Walmart. So don't think I'm talking about something that's only available to healthcare peeps who work in an ER setting or EMS. Moleskin is a soft cotton flannel with adhesive on the back. Mole foam is thicker and somewhat more protective than moleskin. Either one you should keep in your pack and maybe consider keeping a bit in your bag when you're maybe wearing heels or shoes that you haven't quite broken in yet. So what you'll do if you assess that you have a hot spot developing is you'll take a rectangular piece, cut an oval shaped hole in the middle, kind of like a donut, that's the size of the hot spot. You'll center this piece over that hot spot and secure it in place, making sure that the sticky side is not on irritated skin. Now this will act as a buffer against further rubbing. You'll want to reinforce the mole skin or mole foam with some paper tape. You can do the same thing with duct tape in terms of making a barrier or even athletic tape, but you might want to use some sort of lubricant under that tape to prevent the skin from tearing when the tape is removed. The stickier the tape, the more the risk for tearing, and that just will mess up your lovely hike or nice evening if you intended on making a hot spot a not spot and trying to make sure it doesn't become a blister. Now you've paired it with a skin tear. It's all about the ripping and the tearing. By the by, I've never used this, but in researching a bit about skin and hot spots and blisters, there are some blister prevention products like Blistoban or similar products that are touted to really help people with preventing blisters from becoming a nuisance. So if you've actually used these sort of products, definitely hit me up, let me know if it actually does help because I'm always on the lookout for something new to add to my bug out bag. And trust me, my bug out bag is a sight to behold, but that's neither here nor there. Key thing to keep in mind here is to treat hotspots early. They are not a warning of a problem. They're already a problem. So you want to keep that in mind and break in new boots and shoes and the like gradually before your event or trip and make sure that those shoes actually fit properly. A shoe that's too tight can cause pressure sores. One that's too loose leads to friction blisters. Either way, it's not a fun experience. Now ensure that socks are free of debris and consider wearing a thin liner sock underneath a heavier one. Friction will occur between the socks instead of between the boot and the foot. Now I tend to usually wear a thin compression sock under my hiking socks and I've probably saved myself and my feet a lot of trouble and grief. Avoid prolonged wetness as it breaks down the skin, which predisposes it to blisters. Keep your feet dry and use foot powders. Now I've had the distinct honor and pleasure of meeting a few through hikers, people who hike the PCT and the AT, those being the Pacific Coast Trail and the Appalachian Trail respectively. And some of them have actually completed both. So they're like these intense through hikers, backpackers, people that I'm like, oh my gosh, that is my dream. It's a weird dream, but we all have dreams. One thing that they'll tell you though, is to give some loving on your feet. By practicing good foot hygiene and foot care, you won't have issues that'll kill your excursion. Well, at least not from the foot aspect. Also, apply moleskin to sensitive areas where blisters commonly occur before your activity. But speaking of blisters, how is that for a segue? They can ruin your trip in a major way. So say your hotspot evolved into a blister or that it just skipped over the whole hotspot part and now you've just got a blister. If the blister is small and intact, do not, do not 
puncture or drain it. Instead, place a piece of moleskin or mole foam with a donut-style hole cut out slightly larger than the blister and place that over the site. It should be thick enough to keep the shoe from rubbing against the blister. Now, this may require several layers. Secure this with tape and make sure to clean the blister and surrounding skin to prevent infection and help the tape stick. Now, if you're dealing with a large or a ruptured blister, there's a bit of a different methodology to address it. If the blister is still intact but large, larger than the size of a nickel, puncture it with a clean needle or safety pin at its base and massage out the fluid. So kind of like a DIY Dr. Pimple Popper. Clean the area with soap and water and apply antibiotic ointment on the blister. Cover the open blister with moleskin method described before for hot spots. Cover closed blisters with second skin or the blisto band and then place moleskin, mole foam, or duct tape or medical tape over that. Change the dressings daily at least, or in any situation where it will get dirty. When taking down the dressing, it actually gives you the opportunity to inspect the wound for any signs of infection. So you're gonna be looking for redness around the wound, swelling, increased pain, or cloudy fluid collecting under the dressing. If any of this occurs, remove the dressing to allow drainage. Consult a doc as soon as possible. See, skin infections can get out of hand very quickly, and I've seen plenty of patients who end up needing to be admitted to the hospital for IV antibiotic therapy for skin infections gone wild. It can take as little as a few hours for certain infections to get out of hand without proper medical interventions. So really take a good look at your skin and look for signs of infection because it can get really bad really fast. Oh, and speaking of skin infections, sometimes when you're camping, having a good old time, never doing no harm, you end up with a friend who gets a fungal infection, who is possibly going to ruin your whole experience. Thanks a lot, Lisa. Or are they? See, fungal infections are encouraged to grow in hot, sweaty, poorly ventilated conditions, so you see it in a person's feet and their groin. By the way, how hilarious is that terminology? Encouraged to grow. Come on, little fungus, you can do it. Go for it. Come on, George. I don't know why, but I guess in this case, I've named a fungal infection George. But say you develop a George in your crotch. As in things that are red, itchy, scaly, blistering, or crackling, maybe you shouldn't encourage it to thrive. George, you're kind of being a pain in the groin. So here's how you combat a George of a fungal infection. You need to wash the area thoroughly with soap and water and then air dry. Apply a thin layer of 1% hydrocortisone cream or over-the-counter antifungal cream. And if the George is severe enough, consider prescription level antifungal cream. In order to try to prevent a fungal infection, wear cotton underwear or cotton socks, wash your feet, and in echoing the words of Alexis K. Taylor, wash your junk. Nothing is good about a funky crotch. Then remember to air dry your feet and I'm sorry, but I have to laugh at this one. I was doing the research for it and it says in the book, air dry the groin. So air dry your crotch. Sort of doing, I guess, a naked and afraid? Not really, maybe a bit, whatever. Just make sure you're air drying your business. You know what, though? I've seen people come in with fungal infections, which when you don't know any better, if you have a blistering groin, that's a bit of a personal emergency. And I get that, why you would need to go to the ER to get some reassurance that, you know, things aren't 
going bad down there. But I've also seen people come into the ER with poison ivy and poisonous plant rashes. And I feel like people don't realize that the whole leaves of three, let them be mantra is something you should log into your brain like yesterday. So we've had patients come in with massive poison ivy rash from almost head to toe because they set up camp right in a thicket of poison ivy because they didn't know how to read the plants around them. And they were miserable and probably went home with a lesson that they won't soon forget. An uncomfortable one at that. But I just have to do a quick side note, and this episode's gonna be full of digressions, so just hang in there with me. Every time I see poison ivy in my notes, and for this episode especially, I can't help but think of the most problematic but delightful Batman, George Clooney, aka Clooney, aka Dr. Doug Ross, still searching for mine, in Batman and Robin, where Uma Thurman played Poison Ivy, and R. Kelly was inexplicably on the soundtrack with his song Gotham City. It's a whole thing. And there was a bat visa and bat girl and bat nipples and I don't even know. I still say that that movie was clearly an homage to the 1960s Batman, the greatest there ever was, the one that takes number one in my rankings, Adam West. Come on now, all the ice puns from Arnie? That was clearly a nod to the 1960s campy Batman. Holy haberdashery Batman. But back to Poison Ivy of the supervillain, or sometimes superhero, mostly anti-hero type. No, really, it's just the plant type. Poison Ivy, Poison Oak, and Poison Sumac grow in all of the lower 48 states. Individuals vary in their sensitivity to the oil that is present on the surface of the plant. It can be transferred, this oil, to the skin regardless of whether or not the plant has its traditional shiny three leaves in bloom. And even worse, inhaled smoke from burning these plants can cause a significant reaction. So if you want to play a prank on your friend, I do not suggest you mix their marijuana with poisonous plants and then have your friend inhale. I'm not saying that it's happened to patients, but I might be saying it's happened to a patient or two. So signs and symptoms that you got yourself into a leafy problem, well, a red itchy blistering rash, scaling crusty wounds, and a potential for significant local or systemic swelling. Treatment for poisonous plant exposure includes washing the area immediately after exposure with soap and water. Cool water at that. For highly sensitive people, consider using lotions such as Xanfel or Technu to aid with relief. You'll need to immediately ditch any clothing and or equipment that may have been exposed in order to clean it thoroughly. Consider applying a thin layer of hydrocortisone cream or calamine lotion to reduce itching. Oral histamines like diphenhydramine, aka Benadryl, may help to reduce itching. And if anyone has inhaled fumes from burning poison ivy, poison oak, or poison sumac, time to evacuate. Same goes for anyone who has a reaction that has extensive facial swelling and a rash present. Like I said before, we've had someone come in covered head to toe with poison ivy exposure and they were miserable, but also needed somewhat of an emergent medical assessment and treatment. If you know you're hypersensitive, make sure that when you're outside, you consider applying barrier creams before heading out. Preparation goes a long way in making things less miserable for you in the long run. Poisonous plants, no doubt, can make things a drag, 
But if you know to avoid leaves of three and learn to recognize what they look like as well as paying attention to trail signs or doing some research before hitting a trail or camping area, you'll more than likely save yourself a lot of grief by not unknowingly setting up shop in a hotbed of poisonous plants. Also, if you inhale any of that stuff, it does become a huge irritant to your respiratory system and can close down your airway. So, If somebody does that or accidentally burns the plants and you inhale it or somebody you know does, get them out of there as soon as possible. You do not want to run the risk of having somebody's airway close off. Trust me, you don't want that on your conscience. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I have taken care of patients who come to the ER because of a bad sunburn. At first, I kind of actually rolled my eyes whenever somebody came in for a chief complaint of a sunburn because I had been fortunate to never sunburn until a few years ago. See, I was hiking outside and I didn't reapply sunscreen and it was a particularly hot day and I was sweating a lot. In fact, I ended up sweating off a lot of my sunscreen and ended up with a sunburn to both of my shoulders. And while it didn't really blister, thankfully, I did whine and complain about it to all my coworkers who rolled their eyes at me, and rightfully so. I had a mild sunburn, and I've seen people come into the ER with massive blistering sunburns. So I get it. That pain, it can be pretty damn fierce. But what is a sunburn? Well, the suntan or sunburn that people exhibit is a sign of toxicity secondary to UV radiation. Now that sounds sexy, right? The toxicity of our city? Of our city. No, sorry. The long-term risks of UV exposure include skin cancer and perhaps a Kardashian-level nightmare, premature aging of the skin. Signs and symptoms of a sunburn sounds like a no-brainer, but honestly, if you're like me and you have a complexion that is not susceptible to getting burnt, you sometimes don't realize you're being burnt until it's a bit too late. So signs and symptoms include redness that is painful, sometimes swelling, or even blistering. So the biggest things you can do are to cool the burned area as soon as possible. Sometimes applying skin moisturizer or aloe vera gel can help as well as taking ibuprofen for that pain. Hydration and limiting further sun exposure helps with making sure the burn doesn't get worse. So use that sunscreen and don't take your complexion or history of never getting burned for granted. Just trust me on that one. And I think at this point, I've incidentally done two episodes relating to the sun and the heat in some way, shape, or form. So if you don't get it by now how important sunscreen and UV protection and sun safety and sun wise things are, I'm just at a loss for how else to tell you to protect yourself from that big glowing orb in the sky. So just wear sunscreen please just do that. Please, please let that be the takeaway. But being as it is summertime in the States, aside from harping about sun safety, I have to mention that this is the primo season for seeing another common problem in the ER. So sometimes it goes like this. A teenager comes in with their family. Their parents are desperately trying to stifle a laugh when asked why they're coming into the ER. Turns out that the teenager snagged himself and has ended up with a fish hook stuck in the back of their head. And they couldn't get it out. And their parents think it's hysterical. Now, I've noticed that there are a few different methods for removal in the ER, depending on who the physician is that is doing the removal. But the results are always the same with the hook 
being removed. But what if you're caught out there and you end up with a fish hook in your finger? Well, number one, stay calm and try and find the humor that at least you caught something that day, right? What you need to do is attach about a 12 inch piece of string around the curve of the hook. Now simultaneously push down on the eye of the hook and pull the string along the axis of the hook. The hook should come out easily. And like I said, in the ER there are a few different methods, but the one I described for you is one that you can do outside if you end up hooking up with your own self. I guess. You can always go on YouTube for some good old tutorials on how to get a fish hook out of yourself or your friend, but make sure that you, you know, snap a picture or two before you do it. No lie though, I legit see people come in for not only fish hooks, but we see people come in for some splinters that need removal. And sometimes they're pretty gnarly splinters. Now for most people, splinters can be dealt with using a good set of tweezers, but sometimes they are deep and can get infected. And I've seen bad infections set in from a splinter that was deeply embedded in a patient's finger. Now in that case, the patient attempted to get it out by using a not so sterile blade to get out the offending splinter. Now, if you find yourself unable to get the splinter out and it's starting to get red, swollen, painful, and you're running fevers, you need to be seen by a healthcare professional as soon as possible. And then there are some odd situations where splinters actually cause a great deal of problems. A middle-aged man was admitted to the hospital following an explosion in his microlight airplane. The propeller had shattered tearing off part of his left hand and embedding the propeller itself deeply into his skull and abdomen. Almost sounds like a storyline right out of Grey's Anatomy. Well, this here's real life, y'all. After being stabilized in the ER, he underwent surgery with a combined team of anesthesiologists, plastic surgeons, and neurosurgeons in pudding. So, the dude got a bit taken off the top, if you will, when they opened up his skull and had to do a procedure that involved a recession of part of the cerebellum into which a section of the propeller was actually still embedded into. Now, within a couple weeks, this patient was actually making a good recovery. Sure, he still was left with unsteadiness and had left-sided deafness and left-sided facial paralysis, but he was alive. Just as a side note, there's a procedure that they did on this guy to help alleviate some of the facial paralysis he had. And so in this procedure, the eyelids are partially sewn together to narrow the opening. And this is done in effort to protect the cornea from exposure caused by inadequate eyelid coverage that can occur with facial paralysis. So if you're not too squeamish about eyes, you should really look it up because it's really hella interesting. And I didn't even know that was something they did for paralysis and they do it for other conditions where the eyelid just doesn't close quite as much as it should to protect the eye. And it's interesting that people basically have their eyelids sewn shut, sort of. It's just, you know, partially sewn together, so it's fine. So our homeboy gets this procedure done to help with his left-sided facial paralysis, and he's working on gaining strength and getting adjusted to his new normal. Later on though, he started developing this discharge from his ear on the side of the impact, so his left side, and a consult to the ear, nose, and throat department was needed. So just so you know, in my personal rankings of docs by specialties, ENTs, the ear, nose, and throat doctors, are number two in terms of attractiveness. There is a hierarchy. There is a ranking system. It involves a lot of different aspects, but ENTs are across the board are number two. So good for you. Love you guys. You 
guys are really, really attractive. So the ENT assessed this patient and found that a foul smelling discharge was observed coming from the ear. The discharge itself was collected and sent to microbiology and the patient was started on an antibiotic steroid course of eardrops. A week later, the eardrum could be visualized more easily and what seemed like a piece of dried hard wax was visualized as being fixed firmly up against the posterior wall of the ear canal. It's not uncommon in the ER for people to come in needing their ears to be irrigated. And so I've done my fair share of irrigations for patients. Ooh, there I go rhyming again. I'm like the cat in the hat. And there is something so gratifying about getting out these massive chunks of wax from a patient's ear and they can just hear again. And you see this moment where things were muffled and then you blast out that little bit more of that wax and all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, I can hear. I can hear my kids. I can hear my wife. This is amazing. It's immediate instant gratification, instant results. These people can hear again. They aren't dizzy. And it's probably one of the more joyful moments I have in the course of a shift. So for this guy, he goes to get this big old thing of wax removed at the doctor's office. What was removed from his ear canal actually wasn't wax. It was found to be a piece of the propeller, which had been driven into the ear canal. So after further cleaning, it was apparent that there were many further small splinters of wood. Further cleaning and removal was carried out until all the splinters were gone. And that's how a splinter can screw you over. However, Master Splinter would never do you wrong. So take that to the bank. Cowabunga indeed. Like stated in the previous episode, I am abbreviating a few episodes due to my professional job and a few of the things I'm working on actually at my work. But I think I still served up some hella good medical facts and the like, even in a shorter time frame, right? Hashtag nailed it, question mark. But I realized that I'm neglecting my own trademark game. You got what stuck where. So let me try and rectify that right here, right now. Fatboy Slim. I see you. Four clues. You tweet your guest to me at People Are Wild regarding what is stuck. I give you the where. I'm not changing the name because it's catchy. So there. The person most correct first wins sweet stickers, bragging rights, and hopefully good vibrations. Beach Boys, Marky Mark, take your pick. So here we go. Clue one. This happened to a 31-year-old male who presented to the emergency room with a nine-hour history of severe rectal pain. Clue two. The pain came on suddenly when the dude was attempting to drop the kids off at the pool, take a number two, drop a deuce. Why he waited nine hours? Well, actually, I probably know why, but still nine hours of that pain. I just, God bless. Clue three. Upon examination of the gentleman's rectum, a hard, sharp object was lodged horizontally just above the anal cavity. And finally, clue four. It's not mentioned if the man was a colonel, but I'm sure he was looking at a few churches to give thanks after being sedated and the four an object was removed with no signs of perforation and the patient was discharged home where he made a full recovery. So there you have it. I'm going to be highly impressed if one of you accurately gets the object stuck. But then again, I won't be that surprised. Y'all are a smart bunch and I'm lucky, humbled, grateful, hashtag blessed that you listen not just to this podcast, 
but to podcasts in general. And I think I can say that, at least for me, the listeners, you guys are the true MVPs in the whole entire podcasting world. So a big thanks goes out to all of you for being on board this roller coaster of a podcast with me. So wrapping it up, believe in the good, show gratitude daily, practice random acts of kindness, and keep this in mind as we start another new week. It's from Dr. Jane Goodall, who said, quote, what you do makes a difference, and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. Hi, I'm Carla. And I'm Michael. And we're Go Postal Podcast. The podcast where we read your drunken ramblings, postcards, emails, whatever you can think of, really. And how do you get these sent to us? You can send it to P.O. Box 198514 in Nashville, Tennessee, 37219, or gopostalpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher. We release an episode every Monday. Alfita Zane. Ciao. Hello. Hello there. <laughs> I'm Georgie. I'm Kate. And we are Nothing Rhymes with Murder. Each week we hit up a new country and tell each other a true crime story from it. Usually also whilst guzzling Prosecco. Past trips have led us to the Vampire of Krakow in Poland, the last witch burned in Ireland, and the boozing barber in Canada. We don't like to leave you on a downer though, so we will give you some fun hotspots to visit also. Absolutely, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, as well as at NRWM Podcasts on Twitter and Nothing Rhymes With Murder on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. And remember, kids, life is a journey. Just don't let murder stop you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye then. Okay, bye-bye. 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 Bye-b